if you look at what we do as a district council, there are only so many ways you can collect bids. A huge amount of the time, uh, there is cross-party agreement on how to do things and what to do. And, and, you know, if there wasn't, I would be surprised. We have to have a climate view lens on everything, and we have to start taking actions and not just waving banners. I'm anti any activity that discriminates against people on race, colour, sexual orientation, all of those, those topics. Hello and welcome to this Amplify FM election special, where we will be interviewing Stephen Davis, the leader of the Conservative Party group on Stroud District Council. Now we cover a lot of ground, from housing to youth services, the climate emergency and racism. And we ask questions submitted by both Stroud residents and other party leaders. Now we are doing these interviews with party leaders from all of Stroud's major parties in order to make the local elections on May the 6th more accessible to people across the Stroud District. And we hope that you enjoyed listening to these conversations. For upcoming summaries of these discussions, stay tuned to our social media pages at Amplify Stroud and our Amplify Stroud website. Thank you. So I'm joined here by Stephen Davis. Now, I just wonder if you could start by just introducing yourself and then also kind of giving us a, a rundown of what you're standing for and just why people should vote, vote for you. Thank you. Um, so, yes, I'm Stephen Davis. I am a... Um, both county councillor for the um, Hardwick and Seven Ward and also district councillor for Seven Ward. And I am um, the leader of the Conservative group at Stroud District Council. And I, I think there's a danger that people get overexcited uh, about some of these things. In, in truth, um, when our, uh, often at district council, we are in agreement. If you look at what we do in terms of uh, we collect the rubbish, we administer planning, we look after um, environmental health and licensing. You know, there's only a certain number of ways you can do these things. And, and you'd be many people, and I've been talking and recruiting councillor candidates for last year or so. You know, I think you'd be surprised how often we agree and vote unanimously district council. So what's the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. The current Labour-led um, coalition of Green and Liberal Democrats, it's not what they've done, it's what they've not. Done. There's been a relentless gesture and announcements and press releases, but as I'm sure as we'll come on to in this discussion, there's been precious little real action on climate change. I believe climate change is the biggest issue facing us. Um, I think second to that is the post-COVID recovery, and we talk about both of those things. But on climate change, there has been little action by this district council, and we need to fix that. And that's the single biggest thing. And then the second thing is I think... Um, uh, we need to listen more to our local communities, particularly on um, issues like planning, um, and we need to help um, the high street, I think, in a post-COVID world particularly. And I've got some ideas around that, which I'm sure we'll come on to. So in terms of, I'm going to start with one constituent question that we received. What plans do, do you have to tackle the environmental impacts of climate change, but then also alongside that, um, poverty and inequality in Stroud, because so often, I mean, we talk about co-benefits, so, so often these things are kind of intertwined in a kind of a, a green recovery. Yes, though, um, and let's separate them out as two separate issues. Mm. On, on the issue of climate change, um, you have to look at what the District Council actually controls, and it owns 5,000 council houses. And when the district council claims it's carbon neutral, it conveniently left off its own council stock. So the carbon neutral statistic published in 2015 is a little erroneous. And we declared, and it was you know, unanimously done and supported by all parties, a climate emergency in November 2018. As of this moment, um, we've installed a few heat pumps and we've done some other insulation things, both most of which were already in plan. We have no published plan to reduce the carbon impact of our housing stock. We're happy to tell other people what they should do and we're happy to join community groups, but we have no plan. That plan is not due before housing committee until September of this year, nearly three years after we declared the climate emergency. And why not? I'll tell you why not, because it's difficult. It's gonna cost money. It's gonna cost a lot of money to retrofit those properties. And there will be some difficult decisions and um, we may talk about affordable housing and the need for that there will be a conflict between new affordable housing and retrofit and we will have to have that debate we've never had that debate. they've never brought it to council they've never discussed it 
I think we will have to look at the amount of debt we carry as a council to address this, and I believe we will need to uh, eat into reserves. But I can assure you one thing, that a Conservative-led district council will tackle this problem, will produce a plan, um, and will set out to retrofit our properties. There are some other things that we're going to do as well. There's a mindset change. So this council um, recently bought repairs to the council estate in-house, something we again supported. Um, but in that process, they bought 16 diesel vehicles. Now, why did they do that? They did that because of economic reasons, and they did it because they felt there was a lack of charging points where these vehicles would travel. But let's just think about that for a moment. Um, if we are going to tackle climate change, it does involve money. We should have spent money on the more expensive hybrid or um, electric vehicles. And if it's about charging points, these vehicles actually go to our housing estates. And therefore, shouldn't we be looking at char putting charging points in there as well? So this is a mindset that that decision was made without proper um, recognition that somebody said it was a climate emergency. I don't think that was treating it as an emergency. To clarify, these vehicles have been leased by the council, not bought, until sources claim a viable clean alternative is available. And then there's another specific, um, and, and this is, you know, what um, gets me irritated is these are things we could do. We have not put charging points in every single car park that Stroud District Council operates. That just strikes me as obvious. So those sort of things we're going to do. Um, I'm going to take your second question. Um, we have actually done some interesting work. I have to say I support the Greens on this more than the Labour Group on the potential for a carbon, um, a green um, economy based out of skills for retrofit um, and all of those things, of which there is a shortage in the um, district and a shortage in the country. And we could become a leader, and that is exactly the sort of thing we're good at in Stroud. We're good at um, engineering. And, and I think there is real opportunity around that. And I think there is work we can do to encourage local companies. But again, actually, in addressing our own housing stock, we create the demand that may allow that to happen. A number of my um, district councillors are very interested in um, pre-built houses, which is much more environmentally efficient, involves less concrete, um, and concrete is incredibly environmentally harmful, and, and looking at ways in which we could do that. We could do that again for the new developments that we're looking at. So there was a lot more we could be doing, and actually, sadly, all um, the current uh, um, administration seemed to want to do is issue a press release, announce that they're carbon neutral, and declare climate a climate emergency. But actually, I think actions matter, and I think a, um, it's time to give a uh, Conservative administration the opportunity to demonstrate. So going back onto the, the retrofitting and the house building kind of element, what has the District Council done? So on retrofitting, I don't know the numbers of, of the heat pumps, but a, a small number. They've spent a, a couple of million um, trying to address this problem. It will cost tens of million. But the most important thing is they haven't a comprehensive plan. They haven't a, a, um, a list of what they're going to do in what time to go. Um, and they have produced a report, which they put through Housing Committee two months ago, which has no actions and no numbers, no costs. Mm -hmm. They admitted in the budget meeting they have put no line item in the budget to do this. So though there is some work going on, and you know, clearly when we um, have rebuilt existing homes, we have built them to a higher um, quality. And I, you know, you're not going to get me being critical of everything that's ever been done. We have done some very good work. And when we build a, um, um, or re renew a council house, we do it to a very high standard, both actually to live in, but also from an environmental perspective. But we haven't looked at addressing the bulk of that 5,000 estate. On the building of new homes, and it's interesting you mentioned that, um, they again have um, talked about this as being hugely important. Uh, they issued a press release that said they'd facilitated 198 um, units of affordable homes. Actually, they only built five of those. They gave planning permission for the rest. Um, so, you know, this is nonsense. In the last few years, they've built 24 new homes, of which only 12 are net new. These are not the numbers that we need. So, um, you know, this is, again, they're ha very happy to make the announcements. But this is difficult, and it takes hard work. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we need to get on and do some of these things and, and not believe that just issuing a press release is enough. So... I was going talking about kind of doing things. I was going, I was looking through the government's essentially the central kind of funding that is available for housing retrofitting. Um, and I was looking, I came across the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund demonstrator, which I think is kind of almost a pilot project, um, where on the 21st of March, Stroud District Council was granted 
one million pounds worth of funding for retrofitting social housing. How does that match up with the the seeming kind of lack of plan that they're putting in place for? I, I think I think you're incorrect. I think that was actually given to address particular park homes, which are not our properties. So mm-hmm. it, you're right. We applied to a fund and we successfully got money. And I, you know, again, I'm not going to criticise everything. It's a good thing to do, and we are going to help those park homes. Uh, be retrofitted but they're not our properties what is missing in all of this is the bit that we own and we control Mm -hmm. we have done nothing about so that was a good piece of work Uh, I have to say we got better recently at attracting government money um, which is something we used to be atrocious at but we're now getting a lot better at it and um, and that's good news and I'm not going to decry that but then none of that went towards the um, the social housing we own Okay, well, I think also bringing up government is an interesting point because one thing that the UK Green Building Council has brought up is that the issue with retrofitting kind of properties, when the research that they've done with local authorities, the key part of that is government not committing to long-term funding, as we've seen with the Green Homes Grant, and also not committing to a long-term strategy. So how much of this is kind of something which lies directly with the district council, and how much of this is something which lies actually with the government, which would then kind of entail Labour-led council being criticised for something that could be the issue of a Conservative government. And, and it's really interesting. Okay. We, we now have a Conservative MP for the area in Siobhan Bailey, and we work very closely. Actually, we have um, a four-group leaders meeting with our local MPs regularly. And one of the things we do is we send them off on a list of things we want them to lobby for. And, what, and one of them clearly is um, funding for um, retrofit of our um our properties one of the interesting things is as a district council we are um i'm not sure how exceptional but not all district councils still own council properties many of them spun them off to housing associations we mm. didn't do that just in case anybody thinks we're going to we won't do that you know we think it's a good thing to own but we we need to, but i think you're right the government has a role to play in this but this is not about money let's be absolutely clear on this for two reasons one is this Labour-led administration in the last five years has put just under three million pounds into reserves, which means they didn't spend the money. They're actually putting more money into their savings than um, they needed to. So there is money. It, it's not purely a money issue. And also there's been an easing of the um, debt cap on the, um, it's a complicated thing, but on the housing revenue account, which would allow us to borrow more money um, for use on our properties. So yes, I would agree with you. And I think we would all lobby um, and hope to see more money. There was a, a um, green funding scheme that didn't distribute a full amount of money. And I um, absolutely expect the government will come back with future schemes that we will apply for. You mentioned one that we've successfully applied for. Um, but it is, you know, it is not as simple that this council has been starved of money. It hasn't. It's put three million in reserves. One thing I, I did also want to talk about is what we you, you do for obviously transport is a key element of of moving people away from cars, kind of de- decarbonising surface transport. Um, so what would you do? I know much of this is actually in the remit of the county council, um, but in terms of encouraging active transport around the Stroud district and getting people out of cars, what would your plans be on that? I, 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 I'll give you a county view and I'll add a personal um, slant to it as well. I think um, we're doing good work. Um, and, and again, the district council has been involved in this, in things like cycleways. Um, to encourage people to cycle. Um, We have this fantastic canal restoration project, and there is now the addition discussion of a canal corridor so that we may um, widen that to also allow transport routes. I have to say where I live down in um, Frampton upon Seven, we're looking at using the canal to get people to Stonehouse without having to go along um, a dangerous road, the Perry Way, or along the A38 and cross the motorway. So we're looking at all of those ways in which we can do that. But I think the other side to this is we probably will fail to get everybody to cycle everywhere um, due to um, their own preference, fitness, and let's be honest, the weather. Um, so that goes back to my point about charging points and the um, there's going to there's got to be a tipping point on the use of um, non-fossil fuel vehicles, and I think that um, tipping point is around charging points, which is something we can um, do something about. I mentioned the um, you know putting them into our own car parks. I think, and I'm doing some work locally on, in my area on how do we get um, charging points into the housing estates where we have a um, proportion of our housing and make that easier so that our own residents can um, use electric vehicles. And, and I think also we need to work with local businesses to help them support to do that. There's some issues behind this, I won't deny it. One of them is the um, ability of the power grid to handle um, all of that. 
but I think we should head down that route as well, because I think there will always be an element of people who want to use um, their own personal vehicle, and we've got to make that a carbon neutral vehicle. I also think, and, and this is a personal view rather than a conservative, um, Gloucestershire conservative um, view, but I think if you look at, I, I live in a rural area, as many people listening to this will do, and I watch diesel-powered um, buses trundling around empty. Um, yeah, they are rare sites. Um, the bus network is not extensive, um, but even so, they're not heavily used. And I can't help feeling that with technology, we couldn't move to a solution where we could use a smaller, um, either hybrid or electric vehicle on a more dial-a-ride type solution. And I know in the Cotswolds, there's been some pilot schemes around this, where we could therefore um, provide a um, communal um, transport service without um, using um, or, you know, large diesel-driven buses, but, it, but with greater convenience, a sort of community Uber system. Um, it's, you know, it's not impossible. There are pilots in the country. We should look at that as well. How, how accessible would something be like that? Is this something that kind of older residents in particular would be able to... I, the way, I, the way you would have to set it up is you're right. I think, you know, um, a large number of people would be happy and use an app and we should not ignore that uh, as the way forward. But I think you would have to have a, um, a dial ride. You'd have to have the ability to phone and schedule for those people who wanted. Okay. And, and that's true of all studies. It's interesting. There's some really good work being done um, across district councils, but as included um, at uh, what they technically call channel shift, which is where you allow people to um, log onto a website or use an app to request services. You know, why, if you want to order a new green bin or a new um, you know, bin of any sort, you know, why can't you do that on um, going onto a website? Why do you have to ever talk to anybody? It would make perfect sense to be able to do that automatically. But any time that we do that, uh, and it's been proved Strand District Council, you've always got to leave the option for people to um, phone in well, actually, I have to say, when Ebony Mill is open, um, they even call in and ask for that. And, and there, you know, there should be no plans to remove that. But a lot of people would prefer to use an online um, service out of hours um, if that's more convenient. Okay. Now. Obviously, recently Stroud was named the best area of the country to live in by the Sunday Times. On the flip side of that, we've got a lot of questions through, which essentially it talks about how inclusive and accessible Stroud is for, for all of its residents, um, for its young people and, and for people you kind of essentially can't afford with rising house prices, etc. And one of the questions that we have is how are you going to make sure that long-term residents can afford to live in the area? That, that's a really good question and, and very pertinent at the moment because as a district council, we are going for our, um, our local plan. And the local plan has a number of new houses um, um, mandated in it by central government. Actually, we've had that number slightly reduced due to some successful lobbying um, from our local MP. Um, and that is, the idea of that is that if we don't build homes, we will have this problem that house prices will rise. And I have to say, I think we are all conscious and we'll see how it plays out. But in a um, post-COVID world, where many of us have learned that we can work from home, me included, um, I moved out to Gloucestershire some time ago um, because my job allowed me to work from home three or four days a week. There will be many others, I think, who will see themselves able to live further afield. And let's be honest, why wouldn't they come and live in Stroud District? So it's a beautiful part of the world, um, as the Sunday Times identified. So I, I think this is a growing problem, um, but we you know, will have to continue to build homes. That is never popular. You know, if you go and talk to the people around Great Oldbury, which is in, in my district ward, um, you know, when that was originally proposed, there was, you know, a very strong resistance to building new houses in, in that area. And, and, and part of the problem is that when we build them, we need to make sure that they're nice and they um, fit in with the um, area and that they also have the right mix of properties. I think developers would always build four or five bedroom executive homes. We need them to build um, smaller mix of homes as well. And there are conditions as to how much affordable housing they need to build. Um, but the other area um, which directly addresses your question is community land trusts. I don't know how much you know about them. We have one in Eastington. And funny enough, bit. Eastington Community Land Trust have built 24 new properties in the last year. Yeah. Now, community land trust works because of, of a number of reasons. The community selects that they want to do it. They select a piece of land which often allows them to build on a piece of land that wouldn't necessarily get planning permission by developers. And then they are also able to restrict 
um, that it is available to local people. So you have to have a connection with Eastington to get one of these houses. And um, incidentally, though, um, they avoid the right to buy um, equation as well. So actually, as a way forward, um, this is a good idea. Now, I have suggested for some time, I remember having a conversation with Dorna Pennell when we, um, they, um, at the groundbreaking of the East Lincoln community one, why don't we as a district council do more to help this? So one of um, my um, manifesto pledges is we will allocate officer time to helping parish councils understand the process. It's a difficult process. It's complicated. And, and you know, for a parish council who will only do it once, it's a challenge. So I think we should allocate time and support to help them to um, understand the process. Uh, in the case of Eastington Community Land Trust, um, the District Council also financially supported them. I think we should do that as well. And if we can get that happen, we can really generate local community properties um, that will have a link that only local people are able to use. The next question we had, which is also about accessibility, but this is about kind of disability access. The question says, what is the council doing to make Stroud a more disabled friendly? Um, so that is including shops, pubs, halls, cafes, um, as it is very poor as it is. I, I think um, part of this is not inside even county, Lowland district council control. Um, clearly individual premises, there are laws of the land um, mm. that state certain things where possible. There are planning um, restrictions and laws around all of this. But retrofitting older buildings is difficult. And, and let's be honest, the problem and the beauty of Stroud is it is hilly and access can be difficult. Um, I, I think there are a couple of things you can look at. One is, um, and, and clearly we're doing this, is um, any new developments need to be absolutely cover that requirement. The one I happen to know a bit about, Great Oldbury, a lot of work has been done on footpaths and vital paths. I know also in um, uh, Seven area, we've been looking at putting in um, styles that can be used by disabled people, not on every footpath, that's not um, proved to be feasible, but certainly to select particular routes that we can do that. And um, the um, public rights um, uh, officer at County Council has helped in um, helping parish councils identify and provide those gates. We're never going to make everywhere completely disabled access. Um, you know, I think that's probably understood, but I think there is a lot that we can do. But when you get into shops and, and you know, and licensed premises and so on, we have limited power and ability to do that mm. on on, on, on the kind of the power that you do have, and this is also a question which I guess it, it entails into, into housing, and this is also kind of private rented housing as well, um, is how much emphasis would you put on the enforcement of, of standards as the council in terms of housing standards and making sure things are accessible where they are required to be? Um, yes, and, and you hit one of my um, particular hot buttons on, on enforcement. Um, I, I think um, if, and there's a whole area um, of enforcement that people turn to us to do. It's very interesting, you ask people the question, when do they talk to their council? And, and the, by the way, they don't usually differentiate between county and district, they talk about the council. Um, if you are not one of our residents, and you know we have 5,000 homes, so we have quite a large residence, but if you're not one of our residents, it's if we don't collect your rubbish, or if there is something that happens and you want enforcement on that. And if it's a, that you're a private tenant and the quality is not where it should be, you expect us to take action. If you live next to somebody who starts building without planning permission, you expect action to happen. If you have an antisocial um, neighbor, um, there are interesting discussions on what antisocial truly means, but if you, you know, are stuck with a um, consistent antisocial neighbor, you expect action to happen. I have to say, my feeling is that we have not, uh, the, you know, and I've committed that we would strengthen enforcement. Um, both on antisocial behaviour and planning applications. I'm happy to include um, uh, private rented accommodation as well, um, because I think we should do all of those things. But enforcement is important. I also believe that if um, you as a council have a reputation for carrying out enforcement, um, you don't have to do it that many times. We don't have a terrible record on this, by the way. We have prosecuted people, and for, I'm trying to mention where, because I'm not 100% sure where, so I won't mention it, but we have prosecuted people for um, dog fouling, um, not once, but they were persistently doing it after having been warned, and we took um, court action against them. 
We have um, taken action against illegal bonfires. Again, it's not a single bonfire, but you know, a consistent case of that happening. Um, but I think very quickly the message gets around that you are a council who is going to spend time and money on enforcement or you're not. I think we could spend more money um, on enforcement. And of what, um, what enforcement what would you take against, say, private landlords who aren't meeting certain housing standards or what enforcement would you be okay. able to take? So there are, um, I, I don't know the details of the laws, but we, as a council, as I understand it, have the task of inspecting those. And if they fall foul, we take action against it. So we do that and um, we should take, you know, no you know, there's no action we shouldn't take. Now, clearly, I think in these cases, they give them the opportunity to make improvements and a time to be able to do that. Um, but if they don't do it, we should um, prosecute. I'm not aware that we don't, by the way. Um, but is, is this in terms of um, landlords kind of neglecting their property or tenants neglecting council property? That's landlords neglecting? Uh, no, no, both. So um, there is a responsibility that private landlords have to maintain to a certain level. And um, we obviously do as well. And uh, I'm not aware that we have a particularly bad record at maintaining our own properties. So the next question in terms of like, how is Stroud for everyone? Um, I've, I've, I've talked about how young people feel that they're being priced out essentially of the, the town and the surrounding villages. Um, but also one question we had was, um, there are hundreds of young people that go through town every day and there are now very few fully inclusive activities for young people to engage with. Um, how do you want to best serve the young people to live and go through the town? This also draws upon provision of, of youth clubs um, and service and real kind of actual social spaces for young people. Yeah, I think I think that that's a wider question than district. It does um, also involve county. So I, I think it's also to do with age groups, um, which, which is a problem. So if you look at the um, simpler end of this, um, younger children, um, when we build new housing developments, there is a mandatory number of um, play areas that have to be um, included. And they, um, you know, it's again, using the great old example, we've been working with them on that, making sure the quality of those is good. And that's easy to see. Parents who want to take their children to slides and swings, that's easy to. There is a more difficult age group um, where you look at, um, you know, particularly sort of 12 to 16, where how, how do you address and provide them facilities? It's interesting. I did some very um, good work with the door project in Stroud. Um, and where they're trying to do an outreach. So they offer a fantastic facility in the centre of Stroud, but there's no such thing available if you're looking at Frampton or Slimbridge or Hardwick. So we did an outreach project where they actually bought them a, um, uh, you know, their tent and they set it up and they tried to start up some level of activity in those three villages. They only got traction, interestingly, in Hardwick, and that is continuing. We're then working with the youth centre in Hardwick which um, has, um, I think, believe now found a, a premises to work from. Um, but there is, there is a little bit about you know, demand and, and meeting that demand. And I, you know, as a county councillor, um, spent some of my county council um, communities development grant on, on trying to get that done um, with the door project. I also know that one of our candidates, Nick Housden in Stonehouse, is setting up a, um, a he runs a football club to encourage children and out, you know, a bit like the door does, where you come to the youth club, but they identify those who need extra help. He's doing a similar project um, in the old Lloyd's Bank building um, in Stonehouse. So, um, so there are things that we can do. Uh, but just a final comment to this, I sit on Family and Communities Committee at County Council, and we looked into this. One of the issues with old fashioned youth clubs as were, is that if you looked at their impact on those people truly needing help, uh, it was very limited. Um, it tended to be something where, you know, caring parents drove their children to youth club and um, that was all great. But if you really, one of the project problems we were trying to address was um, how do you help those children who are hanging around in a car park or hanging around uh, on a sports field and, and engage them in, in activity? And that's a much more difficult problem than feeling good because we run a youth club. I mean, I did some youth work um, uh, a couple of years ago. And one people was, thing people were saying is that a lot of youth clubs and a lot of kind of access to services were, were decreasing over the past 10 years of, of, of austerity. Have you seen that decrease in youth services over the last 10 years? Right. So statistically, the money flowing to youth um, services um, has changed. But in many cases, they were, they, um, facilities were passed to um, local parishes, local town councils and so on. So again, you take the Hardwick example, up until last year, Hardwick did run a youth club without any financial support 
um, where previously we would have got that from the county council. Um, so the, many of them have created um, and, and thrived on their own. And I go back to my point that actually they are also supported by, well, you know, um, volunteering parents who do that. I think what the um, councils can do, and I, it is county and district, is to try and identify those areas where they need that additional help. And, and you've got to remember, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, it is not actually the county or district's um, job to entertain children. It is their attempt to try and help those children who are in need. And, and you've got to be very careful. And that's why I'm a you know, big fan of the Door Project, because they offer a youth service which attracts people, but they are identifying um, those um, and offer a better, you know, an additional service of counselling to those um, young people who are, they identify as needing help. Mm. And it's that, how do you identify and then spend the money there? And there is money on identifying help for um, you know, young people who are in need of that help. Um, but whether you blanketly spend that across all young people is probably the debate we've been having during austerity. The sense I'm getting there is that it is, and things like the door are fantastic, and it is great when communities can, can run these themselves. But if the money isn't there, then how do we ensure that there is equitable access? How do we ensure that some communities, which might not have parents who have the time to volunteer, um, yeah. so it's not? And, I don't think it's about kind of blanketly spending, but it's making sure it's kind of equitably yeah. accessible. And, and I think we we can agree with that. I think it is about targeting. And and um, if you look for areas of you know um, deprived areas of Gloucestershire, you know actually they're in Gloucester and Cheltenham primarily. We do have some pockets uh, um, in Stroud, and and it is important to try and target there. And Stroud District Council does have a youth service still. I think the important thing is to target it at those areas which um, they can make the biggest difference because coming back to your point you can't spend the money universally in all areas and and i have to say if you look at many of the very nice um, um areas of our district it would probably not feel right to be spending public money on you know providing youth services in some of those i think my point was actually more like i, I more making the case that there should be that kind of like almost universal access um because then a no one falls for the net and also i think it's um just just having social space is kind of guaranteed in every place um universal access always sounds nice but it's hugely expensive um i, I think you you know targeting of those areas where you can have most impact for your money um is is where current mm. thinking is at both at county and, and district yeah I, I think it would say sometimes i think that's the slippage from universal to target it's kind of the, then run the risk of kind of who falls through and i think that's that's probably a debate we could probably go on for for quite a while so <laughs> conscious of time I'm going to move on to the the next one um, and this is focused on retail in particular the Five Valley Shopping Centre which I know is kind of been open to great fanfare and I know is it Sanderson's the new department store yes I haven't um, been there but everybody tells me it's fantastic yeah and this is kind of um, this is kind of the one point that people are kind of picking up on kind of accessibility essentially um, so and the question is do you genuinely believe that the development of the Five Valley Shopping Centre will benefit most people in Stroud and was worth the four million of public money or not now I think to clarify the four million was one million pounds worth of loan and then three million pounds worth of grant from the county council um you're probably better placed to... I, I, um so yeah we actually voted through to lend them the money they never took the loan up okay. so there was no money from Stroud district council going to um that development and i'm not sure there is four million either from if it, if it was it would be from the lep the um you know local enterprise partnership yeah um, i think I, whether or not it's public money was the um but, just the point but to... um um, but the um, Sony Stroud District Council were prepared to lend some money to get it started. I, I think there are two things you'll look at here. One is um, that site was in a bad state and, and poor state of repair and something needed to be done. And um, I have to say, I think the development that's been put there by Transfield is um, imaginative and um, ambitious. We, you know, some of us might even say, you know, I, we wish them well, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a big leap. Um, in terms of the type of shop that they put there and you, you, you wish them well. Um, mm. But if you look around the rest of Stroud, um, it is not like we are, by doing something there, we have starved other shops or premises. I think in Stroud today, we still have an issue that there are empty shops and um, capacity. I think COVID will only accentuate that. So anybody who's prepared to invest and start a business in, in that area, I think should be commended. Uh, and if it attracts more people into Stroud from further afield, and let's be honest, Stroud is competing. It's you know, ultimately competing with Gloucester Docks, it's competing with Cheltenham, it's competing with Simon Sester, 
I mean, you know, if we draw more people into Stroud because of that investment and by predominantly by Dransfield, not by Stroud District Council, and those people then wander down the high street and spend money in some of the other great independent shops that we've got in Stroud. I think that is a hugely important thing. I think um, retail is under huge pressure at the moment um, and differentiating and attracting footfall is hugely important. About, oh, I'd say about 20% of the, the respondents that we got um, referenced racism, essentially, and inclusion in, in Stroud. Um, and there's one constituent question that I would like to start with, um, and that is, are you an anti-racist? Yeah, of course I'm anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, what do you define racism as? When you say you're anti-racist, what are you anti? I'm actually you can widen it. I'm anti. If you know, you look at the um, allocated groups. I'm anti any activity that discriminates against people on race, colour, sexual orientation, all of those those topics. And most of them, and, and you know, it's a really, you know, an area that you know is difficult. And it's difficult because there are laws. There are things that are blatantly illegal. We actually had a case of. Um, homophobic abuse in um, Stroud recently. Yes, I heard about that. Uh, the police turned up, there was an arrest, it is illegal. That is easy, and that's an easy definition. I think the more difficult one, and the one I think we've struggled with recently, is um, a, an insidious implied racism and the suggestion of institutional racism um, without those evidence points that you can pick on. And that becomes very difficult because it is a perception rather than a blatant um, position where a rule has been broken, somebody has done something that is blatantly racist. I'm sure there are still cases, uh, as we saw in the um, homophobic case recently, I'm sure there are cases of blatant racism that should be reported and action should be taken, but I have no evidence that, that you know, if reported action isn't being taken, I'm reasonably confident of that. But I do think there is the um, general just feeling people have that they're being discriminated against without it being blatant enough that it is a breach of the law. And that's a difficult area. And I, you know, by most difficult areas, there is not a simple single solution. Okay. The Debbie Young tweets, um, which we've obviously covered at Amplify, etc. So there was the one kind of, there was the tweet about All Lives Matter, and then there was the two retweets. Did you ever believe any of them to be, to be racist? Um, so let's clarify. Um, First of all, I um, made sure that Debbie Young apologised because she did not mean to cause any offence and remove those tweets. In the case of the first two, they went to the monitoring officer, which was exactly the right thing. It was um, treated as a complaint and they were found not to to neither be illegal nor racist. And and at the back of all of this, but she did remove them and she did apologise for them. Does it matter what offence they cause or what offence is intended? Uh, It does. does matter, but it, there is an issue behind all of this of freedom of speech, and they weren't illegal, and the, Twitter didn't remove them. They weren't originated by Debbie Young either. They were retweeted. Um, so we then, judge, yeah, yeah, then we get into judge and jury, um, mm-hmm. and that is why I didn't take that position. I didn't say I approve them or disapprove them. They went to the monitoring officer. There was a full in, you know, um, investigation into them, and you know, the outcome was that they were not found to be either illegal or racist. Now they have been removed and she has apologised. And, you know, I'm sure most people know Debbie Young is not standing again. Not that that's necessarily related. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is where my concern comes in when you say that you are an anti-racist, because for the so the, the two tweets, the first one that was um, Katie Hopkins, that was essentially about white replacement theory. That was the same stuff that <coughs> motivated Andres Breivik, for example. Um, in terms of this idea that white people are becoming a minority, that is a threat. Um, and then the second one, which is, it was that asylum seekers or people arriving by dinghy get free accommodation, food, TV, and an iPhone, um, which is very much kind of both factually inaccurate, um, vastly factually in- inaccurate. No, um, I, I totally agree with you. I think that second one is just just a joke. Um, and I don't, I, I thought that was... But in your initial you know, rock- email response, you said that it was factual. And not racist. No, I said it's factually inaccurate in my email response. Factually inaccurate? Yeah. I've always said that. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about it is it is not racially specific. It's actually aimed at asylum seekers and 
you know, that, you know, they can be of all races. Um, True, but it's very much when we talk about race and asylum in the country, it's very much something which is bordered yes, up in race. And is, also the idea of, I mean, the idea of borders, but also the idea of asylum seekers who aren't worthy of these things, who aren't worthy of a free accommodation, food, TV, like race is about deciding who is worthy and who isn't. Um, but, so this but, explicitly draws upon that. But Jamie, you're, you're applying an interpretation to it. Again, actually, there is a law that differentiates between asylum seekers. And this country has a very good mm. reputation of asylum seekers in Syria. And we have some of them locally here in Sky District. But does it have and, a good record um, of taking them from Iraq? No, no, and illegal immigrants, which I think you'll find the law very clearly define, differentiates between the two. Now, you might think that that differentiation is wrong or harsh, or but, but that is the law of the land. And, you know, that's why that tweet was factually incorrect, because it sort of assumed that people arriving on dinghies were, um, you know, asylum seekers. And actually, they were, um, you know, they may be illegal immigrants. And that's a decision that will be taken in the due process of them arriving. And that's why it was very misleading. I mean, we're coming, we're coming, we're talking so about the law, which you may is the have same law which enabled should be, but... the, the Windrush yeah. scandal, and it's enabled like the Jamaica 50, which is, has been clearly found by any expert that you'll talk on the matter that this is something which has been racist, the hostile environment has been, been grounded in that, because again, it's about deciding who's worthy, who's unworthy. I don't know how we can then consider the same law that enables that to be a law which is an arbitrary judge surely um, i'm just going back so your initial email response to me said i believe this to be factually correct and not racist was that a typo which, which um which tweet were you talking about so this is the I, 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 it's a typo because i and you know i know because i had the same conversations with stride against racism i've been to a couple of their meetings um and you know absolutely categorically on the record believe that that and um, uh, the tweet okay. about people in dinghies is factually incorrect and consequently unhelpful. I think all three of them are unhelpful, by the way. Um, but that one is actually both factually incorrect and unhelpful. So going back, I mean, I can see there's probably not going to be grounds for consensus on, I mean, it, it is, it is does, does concern me that something this far out isn't deemable as, as you can't see the racism behind it. Moving on to... Can I just racism. say, because you, you, you're allowed to make that statement, we yeah. have a very strong tradition of freedom of speech in this country. What is that great Voltaire quote? I may not agree with what you say, but I'd die for your right to say it. Um, I have to say, and if you do stop and talk to people, there is a, um, and, and I think it's very dangerous when you suppress um, people's views. Um, I think we've seen some of the damage that that can also do. I think you do have to be very careful not to allow a, um, a, a group of people to take an interpretation and apply that to everybody else without, um, you know, so there are people at the moment defining terms mm -hmm. and, and they define terms to suit them and then they label other people because they use those terms. That, you have to be careful, is a slippery road. And, and the only reason I didn't take a stronger action is because I do and I very hard believe in freedom of speech mm -hmm. and I'm very careful not to join any group that tries to suppress freedom. But I think when we talk about whether or not this is racist, this is something which, you race is something which is completely made up. It's a biological, it doesn't mean anything, obviously, because it's a made up power structure. But you can very much historically root where that power structure is developed from and then track it and then and then learn how that um, manifests itself today because it's like I'm constantly reproducing itself. And that is how we're able to look at something which, again, Andrzej Breivik um, was motivated by in the white replacement or the idea that asylum seekers are getting given all this free stuff at the expense of, 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 British people or, or white people, for example, that's how we can judge whether or not those things are, are racist. If you would like to know more about the racism underpinning Debbie Young's tweets and the tweets themselves, as well as the issues with the monitoring officer's assessment of these, you can find our articles covering these issues on our Amplify Stroud website. Moving on no, to you, the... can't, you can't judge that one person's extrapolation is reason to judge, um, you know, in the same way you may interpret something. Hmm. And, and you're more welcome to, to interpret it so, so differently. I, I, you know, once you get into interpretation, you are on a slippery slope. I, I am beginning to lose um, track of where this, what this has to do with, with district council and county council, but because happy to have the conversation. I, raising it because so many people have raised it with us, and then I know many people that I've talked to are concerned about rural racism and what their representatives are doing and whether or not they, they recognise it. And I think that's why, that's why we're bringing it up now. Well, um, let, let me make it absolutely clear. I, you know, I am anti-racist. 
Um, and if you, if anybody, and it was um, suggested that Strand District Council is in any way racist or institutionally racist, we need, and I've asked this several times to Strand Against Racism, we need examples that we can then do something about. It's a very um, unhelpful to cast dispersions at people or organizations. Stroud District Council um, employs more black and minority ethnic people um, than our average in the district. Um, and those people were offended when the organization was described as institutionally racist. Um, and on the flip side of this, what leadership have you taken or what kind of, what things have you pushed forward which would address racism um, within within the district, either before Black Lives Matter um, and everything kind of came to light and then and then since? Well, I had to, I'm not sure Black Lives Matter has changed my thinking um, because I wasn't racist beforehand and it didn't take, uh, you know, a Black Lives Matter to make um, a, a huge difference. I have talked to Stroud Against Racism on a couple of occasions. I have to say that, and, and we, I've talked to them specifically about this, that I think the um, one of the biggest issues is around education. And um, we did a, um, a dis, um, anti-discrimination training session um, for all district councillors and um, following Black Lives Matters. And I have to say, I thought the quality of it was only average, and I'd said that. Mm -hmm. um, I said, uh, give me examples so that maybe we could get somebody from the local community to come in and help us understand examples. And um, that hasn't been taken up by um, Donna Pennell took the action to follow up on that, didn't happen. There's the theme here. Um, and I think that's a shame. Um, because do you I understand if, because um, one thing I'm kind of picking up, and again, like I, I do, going back to your kind of inability to, to recognize what's within these tweets, but we've covered that. I'm not gonna kind of go back, go back on that. Um, do you understand why some people might not be willing to either invest the time to come and talk or to kind of engage much further on this that, when there's such a, or do you, is it kind of, talk. okay. Um, and, and then the other bit, which I was going to complete is I think um, education, particularly in schools is an area where I think nationally, not just in Stroud, but I think, um, uh, and I look back at my own education and I did a, um, a, a Q and A session in the 2019 general election at, um, at one of our schools and was asked a question about you know, our history and teaching of history. And I think that there's a, um, a level of colonialism that I wouldn't throw out completely, but I think we, there's some rebalancing that needs to be done in education because I think that is, is where much of this um, potentially starts. So you know, there are things I think that we could and should absolutely do. Okay. Um, your use of potentially starts is is I'm very tempted to kind of go down the go down that, but I think we'll we'll park this for a second because I'm kind of conscious of of time. Yeah. Moving on to the the operations of Stroud District Council, what the um the, the working relationships are within the council, and then kind of how you work together in the best interests of, of the, the, the district as a whole. Yeah, I, I think I made two comments on that. I think it's really important to understand that the council employs people, officers, to do part. You know, you know your elected district councillor does not collect the bins. Actually, they do not make the, um, the planning decisions. They do not, um, you know, give out um, licences to pubs and whatever. There are officers who do that. The purpose of the politicians as elected is to set the policy and to ensure that policy is followed. So there is that very important differentiation in the first place, um, that it is not politicians' job to do the task. And, and we happen to run at Strand District Council, a system that works quite well of committees, and committees set that policy, and they then also um, have performance reviews of whether those policies have been followed, and then ultimately full council will endorse many of those policies. And I made the comment right at the beginning that actually, if you look at what we do as a district council, there are only so many ways you can collect bins. There are only so many, you know, there are huge amounts and volumes of planning law, and there is only so much discretion within um, the planning officers to address planning law. Much of this is set by, uh, by national law and the national planning framework. Um, so, and, and therefore, it should not surprise you that in those committees and even in full council, a huge amount of the time, uh, there is cross-party agreement on how to do things and what to do. And, and you know, if there wasn't, I would be surprised. Um, you know, I know 
opposition have supported many things that this coalition have put forward and we voted for them. Um, there are those that I've objected to. Most of them have been those things that are nothing more than gestures. And most of my criticism has been what they haven't done and not what they have. Mm -hmm. um, and then would you describe it as a positive or kind of working relationship between you and Donna Cornell, the leader of the council, for example? Um, we've been working very positively during COVID, um, partly because we didn't have an election last year and partly because of the nature of COVID, we've been having um, group leaders meetings, including all four of us, and um, there has been some very positive elements of that. I have to say, um, I've nothing personal against Doina, but I have a real dislike of gesture politics and all this virtue signaling when actually they don't do the things. If they did the things behind it, I'd be a, you know, much more supportive. So I do find um, um, that um, less good in terms of working practices. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, and it's a general comment, not a specific comment. I think there is too much tribalism in our local pro um, politics in Stroud. Um, I think, um, and, and, you know, I, I wouldn't deny that there's a tribal element on, on my side of the um, political divide as well. But actually, you know, you get a couple of councillors in a room and you listen to their conversation, sometimes you wouldn't be able to tell which party each one was from. They're agreeing on getting things done for the district. Where it tends to go off um, kilter is at full councils when people feel the need to grandstand and make political statements. And there is, you know, a tribal belief that all, you know, one party does this always and another party does that always. I, I think that's sadly un, um, unpleasant. And there is, um, in Stroud politics, a very nasty element. There has been for some time. I remind you that the only time we got into the national press in the 2019 election was when a Labour canvasser was rude to a Green canvasser. Now, I'm ashamed of that. I think mm -hmm. Stroud is better than that. And I think we should and get rid of the nasty element in our local politics. Speaking of the nasty element, I know one of your candidates, I think John Cooply Hammond, he was actually warned by the police for harassment of, I think, Labour's campaign manager during the 2019 election. Stroud Conservative Party have asked me to make a clarification that John was not formally cautioned by the police over this incident, which I'm happy to do so. Regarding the incident itself, Concerns were raised to the police and to members of the Labour Conservative Party about John's behaviour towards a Labour Party member of staff during the general election in 2019, where he had posted derogatory comments on more than one occasion online about her appearance and, it was felt, spent an unneeded amount of time outside the Labour campaign office on King Street, which made the member of staff feel intimidated. Our understanding is that the police followed up this complaint and spoke to John about his behaviour and encouraged him not to repeat said behaviour. So do you think that is also something which you're going yes, to Yes, he also of, took a, he also issued a complaint against the same person. That came out of um, him daring to ask the question about David Drew's voting record on homo homosexual rights during um, his time as our MP. And uh, that also then followed with bullying um, from the same person. And the only reason there wasn't a monitoring officer uh, investigation into that is that they were not acting in their capacity as a um, town councillor, they were acting okay. there. So that excuses the harassment no, and no, intimidation that he was... But, okay. um, there, there are clearly two sides to this story, and uh, um, there, you know, there was a complaint in the other direction as well. Okay. Um, and lastly as well, your own Twitter um, fees. Um, I did go through the replies earlier. It's not the most positive of, um, of, of things. Is this kind of how you would, would say you do your campaigning or is this something which is kind of more well, I, Twitter specific? I don't know which Twitter feed you look at. I hardly ever tweet. I, I'm talking so about the replies on the thing, which is kind of usually yeah, on Stroud Labour and doing them. Yeah, the only things you'll see is factual corrections. I challenge you, there's somebody else accused me of this yesterday. I challenge you to find a single tweet I have put out that is not a factual correction of the nonsense put out by Stroud Labour that I feel occasionally should be called into account. It's really interesting, Stroud Labour clearly um, are concerned about this because they now delete all of my comments. Um, so I'm not, you know, I have nothing to apologise for. I, for some time, have considered Twitter to be fairly toxic and I've only ever used it to refute um, factually incorrect um, tweets by um, particularly Stroud Labour and Doina Canal. So speaking of Doina, you have submitted questions to all the other candidates um, and the other candidates have submitted questions to you. 
Um, so starting with Doina, um, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the district in the next few years? Climate change. I think there are going to be some um, post-COVID um, recovery um, issues. I think if you look at the economy, um, actually it was very robust before we went into COVID and large amounts um, of the economy has still um, survived, but I think the particular pockets around hospitality and, and retail that may need additional help. So I would add that to my list. But I think the single biggest one is climate change. And the thing about that is it is um, across everything we do. We're going to tackle it through our housing stock. We're going to tackle it through planning. You don't want me to repeat all the things I said at the yeah. beginning. But basically, you know, we have to have a climate view lens on everything. And we have to start taking actions and not just waving banners. So Molly Scott Cato from the Green Party's question is uh, to everyone, um, are they concerned about the threats to democracy in the UK? Um, and what would they change to make sure that we restore and enhance our democracy? I, I think, um, and I, I, I sort of referred to this earlier, I think there is a danger that um, politics has become very nasty. I, I, it probably always has had a nasty element to it. I think um, I, I, you know, I'm troubled by um, populism um, from any side of politics. I think you know, I would much for um, debate on the issues and the merits um, rather than the, um, the individual. Um, and um, I think there is, I think um, there have been a number of issues that have been hugely divisive. The obvious one is Brexit. And um, you know, no matter where you stand on the issue, I think we have to now accept we are where we are at and um, hopefully move forward and make the best of it and hopefully that we can begin to repair some risks. So, but, um, so I think we've had a very um, angry um, period in politics um, uh, and I hope we can resolve that, but I'm not sure what threats to democracy she particularly had in mind. So the Liberal, Dem Liberal Democrat question is, does Stephen tire of the use of its two-horse race, in, in quotation marks, in, in election literature, as it seems so often to be conservatives versus the rest. Would Stephen agree that if results more closely followed voting patterns for a system of proportional representation, tactical voting and negative voting would diminish brackets, most likely to the advantage of the Conservative Party? Let me take the um, first point first. Um, he will, I, um, they will be very pleased to know there isn't a single Conservative leaflet going out in Stanford District which um, does, talks about a two-horse race. Actually, generally, in all of our campaigning, we are telling people what we're going to do um, and let them make up that decision. On the second question, which is about proportional representation, uh, it's one of those things that's difficult to argue against because it seems to make common sense. But actually, one of the things about a first-past-the-post um, system, it was really interesting, a sixth former um, from, I think, Marling School told me this, and I went, yeah, of course that's right, is that if you have to get build a consensus around a party, um, you have to then collect in all those people who have similar views, but there is disagreement within that, but they are willing to work together and achieve their general objectives. And, and you know, that terrible broad church um, analogy that, you know, big tent, whatever you want to describe it as. But actually having worked in politics and, and working alongside um, fellow district councillors and county councillors who might have varying different views, their ability to come together around some principles actually is a strength. Um, so I'm not against um, uh, the first-past-post system. And I have to say, I feel very sorry for all those poor people who will be voting in the Peace and Crime Commissioners um, poll, because this is, has one of these single transferable votes and, and is hugely, and, and the public don't understand it. And, and I don't think it achieves great democracy, um, to, to be perfectly honest. I think in the first time we ever held one, the Conservative candidate actually was the head if you took first vote preferences and slipped behind in second vote preferences. I'm not sure how I can see that as, as um, democracy. You know, actually, there is a huge advantage in this consensus of um, people would come together over politics. The ability for minority parties and single issue um, parties to have disproportionate control um, because they are the casting vote, I think is dangerous. And we've seen examples of that locally and nationally. Okay, now moving on to our final question. What is your favorite pub? And if you are a drinker, what is your drink of choice? Um, I, I have to say probably the Red Lion in Arlingham, um, but um, that or the, um, the Badger in Eastington, but I never get there as often as I'd like to. And I tend to go out to dinner. I don't seem to go out for a drink in the evening. Um, I have to say in daytime, find a bitter. 
um, you know, um, but evening glass of wine. Lovely. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really appreciated being able to talk um, and hopefully people are able to kind of better access what your thoughts and opinions and, and what the council does through this. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amplify FM. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can subscribe to the podcast and find our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Also, feel free to check out our content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, at amplifystroud.com.